Father, let your will be done. Father, let your kingdom come. What an amazing truth to sing together this morning. And I love that we were singing, Father, forgive us, and that we were also calling each other to forgive one another, to forgive others. Forgiveness is, is a central reality of the Christian life. And it's important to realize that in our culture, some people think the very idea of the need for forgiveness is a highly offensive idea. We need to start with the belief that forgiveness is actually needed. Many people think that's just a horrible, shaming mentality to tell anyone they need to be forgiven. But the human experience throughout human history teaches us that the realization of our need for forgiveness is deep within every human heart. We all know we have to answer to our Creator. Even though we may try to suppress that truth and unrighteousness, we have to come to terms with the fact that human beings throughout history in every culture have had a sense of guilt. A deep sense of guilt. Now, we can try to explain that away in Freudian explanations all we want, but it's going to be there nonetheless. And so explaining it away isn't going to solve the problem. We need forgiveness. And so the question is, is that available? Is that available in a way where we actually are forgiven to the point where we become forgiving people? Where we not only say, God, forgive us, and then have assurance that we are forgiven because of Jesus, but we have to become forgiving people because forgiven people are forgiving people. And so forgiveness is this massive concept at the heart of the Christian life that first we need a category for. And the book of Jonah has been teaching us that God is incredibly forgiving. And God's people can lack forgiveness. And that is a serious problem, a serious defect. That if we've been forgiven by a holy God as sinful creatures who've rebelled against Him, forgiveness should flow from our hearts extravagantly in a way that actually starts to look a little bit like the way God has forgiven us. And we come from a long line of forgivers. From Joseph, who said to his scoundrel brothers who threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery. Now, you might have had some sibling rivalry in your life and family, but it's going to be hard to top that. Sold him into slavery he's able to look them in the eye and say, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And he could move to a place of forgiveness because of the big picture that he had. From the Apostle Paul who teaches us to be kind to one another and forgive from tender hearts. Oh, that's a man who knew he had been forgiven much. A murderer of Christians commanding us to be forgiving because he knew he had been forgiven much. He's just following in the footsteps of his Savior who was able to say to the people murdering him about them to his Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we come from a long line of forgivers. Do you know today, today is the anniversary of the Council of Constance? Did you know that? 1414, Council of Con. You didn't know that, did you? Yes, and at the Council of Con, I didn't either until I read it this morning on my daily email today in Christian history. But today, 
the Council of Constance in what is now Germany held a council and among other things they declared John Wycliffe apostate after he had already died. They ended up digging up his bones, burning them into ashes as a denouncement of everything he believed. But one of the guys who followed in his footsteps, Jan Hus, this Prague preacher who followed Wycliffe and set the stage for what became the gospel, gospel restoring reformation. At that council, he was condemned to death. One of his main tenets as he sought truth and to fight corruption in the church was that we should forgive our enemies. And so one of the very last things he did before he was burned at the stake was get on his knees and pray for the forgiveness of the people who were about to kill him. Yeah, we come from a long line of forgivers. And not just long time ago, but Gracia Burnham, who was taken captive by Muslim terrorists in, Philipp in the Philippines for a year in horrible conditions. And when her husband was finally murdered after a year of being kidnapped and she was released, she prayed for the forgiveness of the people who held them captive. And she actually wrote comic books explaining Bible stories and she found out that those comic books ended up in prisons where some of her captors read them and trusted Christ. Yeah, we come from a long line of forgivers. And so we have to be people who understand how much we've been forgiven so that we can become forgiving people and show the world that we know a God who forgives lavishly and exhaustively. And Jonah is a counterexample to what I'm talking about. That's why we're looking at this book. We just finished the Gospel of Luke where we saw God's amazing heart for the least and the lost and the rebellious and the, the, uh, the irreligious and the unclean of society. All, throughout the whole book of Luke, God is going after people who you don't think deserve His grace. And that very idea of not deserving grace is an absurd idea because of course you don't deserve grace. It defies the definition of grace to think it ever needs to be deserved. That as we finish the Gospel of Luke, we want to look at a counterexample so different than what we've seen in Luke. And now we are looking at that example. Then, after Advent, we'll look at Daniel. Great examples of people who flourished in the land and prayed for the good of the people who even opposed them. And then we'll look at the book of Acts as the church gets established, often under great persecution and continues to love and forgive. And the Gospel advances in the context of those hearts of those people but as we conclude our chapter here at chapter four of Jonah I, I want to look at this guy who just doesn't get grace he doesn't understand the sovereign grace of God I stopped using the term years ago he was radically saved or she was radically saved because that makes it seem like some of us need a little less radical salvation than others when if you understand salvation, every one of us has been brought out of darkness into life, into light, out of death into life, and that's radical. Regardless of the details and circumstances of your life, when that happened to you, we are all radically and awesomely saved. And we have to realize the sovereign grace of God is at the core of this. 
So let's read Jonah chapter 4 as we conclude this story that begins with this prophet of God being told by God to bring the message of repentance to a very, very wicked people. And we saw when we started the series that Jonah had good reason to have resistance to the idea of offering forgiveness to these people who had been so horrifically oppressive and abusive and persecuted the people of God. He had good reason to do this, but he needed to understand God's heart. And so now we see he begrudgingly carries out the commission to bring the message, and sure enough, they repent. And he's not happy about it. So let's see his response in Jonah chapter 4. Lord, help us now as we go to your word to hear from you, not just a frail, struggling preacher, but from you, through your word, as the Spirit works, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jonah 4, 1. After these people in Nineveh repented and received forgiveness, here's what Jonah says. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you're a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out from the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? <laughs> That's great. Well, what's going on here? I, I want us to realize at least five things from our passage this morning. One, no one is beyond God's mercy or transforming power. No one. No one. Two, salvation comes from the Lord, and it's all through His sovereign grace. Three, 
people are accountable to God and responsible for their sin, but they're also pitiable victims living life in a fallen world. Four, God loves to forgive. And five, we are called to be God's instruments of mercy. No one's beyond God's mercy or transforming power. Salvation comes from the Lord. People are accountable, but also pitiable. God loves to forgive, and we are instruments of God's mercy. One, no one is beyond God's mercy or transforming power. If there were ever a group of people that Jonah would have thought were beyond God's transforming power and mercy and grace, it would have been the Ninevites. Like I've said, there's good reason for this. Let's not be like Jonah toward Jonah. Let's have grace for this man who understands how wicked these people were. He experienced the persecution and the the violence and the horror that the Ninevites had brought to the people of God for a very long time. He had good reason to hate them. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so even though justice is a right thing, as we said in the first sermon in the series, God loves to show mercy, and no one is beyond that mercy. No one. Do you have people in your life who you think are beyond God's mercy or transforming power, or will never respond to God, even if you do bring the message to them, so you've given up in trying to be an instrument of mercy? We can never allow ourselves to put anyone in a category of beyond God's reach. I just love how the Ninevites respond to the message that Jonah half-heartedly brings to them. Look at the amazing response in verse 8 that, that Rob helped us see. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Then listen to this. Who knows? Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And God does. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I love how the Ninevites don't have any presumption of God's grace. They're not at all presumptuous. It's, who knows? I love that. Just maybe. Just maybe God will forgive us. They don't question the rightness of his anger toward them and his justice. See, there may be some of you sitting out there this morning who really have a hard time with God being as just as he is, being wrathful towards sin and evil, but it couldn't be more right for a holy God to judge sin, a holy God to judge evil. What sort of God would you want who is ambivalent in the face of sin and evil that is alive and well in this world. And if you have a strong sense of righteous indignation towards sin and evil in this world, you're in good company. God is the one setting the standard of righteousness. And so judgment is right. And I love the Ninevites. You know it's true repentance when they don't come saying, would you forgive me and you better forgive me you can, well, I can have that attitude, right? You're a Christian. You have no option but to forgive me. So bring it. 
right? There, there can be this presumptuousness and not this awe that says, who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will actually forgive us if we ask Him to. No one's beyond His mercy. The Ninevites saw God's righteous anger as appropriate and didn't have any presumption on His forgiveness. And what's fascinating here is God turns from His anger as you see in chapter 3, verse 9. But Jonah's angry. Jonah's angry that God's not angry toward the Ninevites. He's angry about the lack of God's anger and justifying his anger toward God in this. Jonah becomes angry. And this entire section is, is marked by a giant chasm between Jonah's attitude and perspective and God's attitude and perspective. And there's a lot of irony here and humor out of that irony where we see having Jonah's condemning God for not being angry and now Jonah's being challenged by God for his anger that he complete, feels completely justified in toward a merciful God. Jonah's hoping that God will bring a whole dose of Sodom and Gomorrah on the Ninevites and he sits there hoping and waiting that God will change his mind about his willingness to forgive the Ninevites. He's just sitting there, sitting there, looking over the city, not praying for its good as God's people are commanded, but hoping God will bring the hammer. And as I said, there's a rightness to the hammer. The, the martyrs in Revelation are saying, how much longer, Lord, do we have to wait till you vindicate our blood? Righteous people want to see righteousness reign. That's a vital part of his kingdom coming to earth, righteousness. But for now, he's merciful, and he's patient, and he's got this period of time in human history where there's an opportunity to flee the wrath to come, and God's people who love justice need to love mercy, and in this time, yes, preach the coming judgment, but with enthusiasm, encourage people to flee the wrath to come. So I'm moody, said, yes, preach hell, but always with a tear in your eye. If, if you don't have a tear in your eye for perishing people, if you only long for justice, which has a rightness to it, without tears in your eyes at the same time, this side of justice, you're lacking the heart of God. I can't put it any more clearly. That, that's what we have here, a stark difference between Jonah's attitude and God's attitude. And we can justify our lack of mercy and forgiveness because of a right appreciation for justice are there people you think are beyond God's reach or don't deserve God's mercy I bet we all have someone we can think of maybe far more than just one I can I can think of many times in my life in relationships I've had where, where I had a response to someone who I either knew very well sometimes in my own family or some sometimes someone I read about and I just want to condemn them to hell somebody in my family was being profoundly influenced by Madonna in really immoral ways and so someone else in my family started praying that God would save Madonna <laughs> or kill her and so she started praying. Now, I, I think there's something appropriate about both of those things when you see someone having a corrupting influence. And Madonna, if you're listening, I'd love to have lunch and explain the gospel to you. But 
Right. Wouldn't it be great if she did listen? I, I, because no one is beyond, beyond God's mercy. Even people who are having a corrupting, profoundly corrupting influence, we need to have hearts of compassion and the belief that God can transform and reach anyone. I could tell you hundreds of stories in my life of people I thought were off the table and not even worth my prayer. My dad had a heart attack years ago, and it was a bad one. So I packed my black suit to fly to Florida. And I, I, had, I had been working really hard right up until then, and I, I was trying to scramble, thinking about what I would say if my dad died at his funeral. And, and as I was flying to Florida, I, I was in this mode of I'm giving myself complete permission to just not talk to anybody. I'm, I'm, I'm off duty as a minister because i got a lot of ministry. I've been doing ministry. I'm going to do it. I'm a Florida, so I'm off duty. That's, that's how I felt. I gave myself permission to do that. And, you know, I, I guess that's okay to do sometimes. I'm, I'm not saying that's wrong of me. But God brought an unavoidable ministry opportunity my way. And I'm, she, was, she was very drunk when she got on the plane at a layover. I didn't get out of my seat very drunk, she was singing that old Will Smith song, I'm going to Miami. <laughs> she got on the plane, and she sat right next to me, really drunk, and making a scene, and really embarrassing herself, and people were starting to say things that were rude to her, and, and she, was, she was, you know, giving people opportunity to mock her, and I just felt so terrible about this I said I need to redirect her so I got to talk to her and I said so you're going to Miami <laughs> she said yeah I'm going to Miami my daughter goes to the University of Miami and we're going to party she said and we're going to have a good time it's going to be great my daughter's awesome and she was talking about her daughter and she said what are you reading and I said the Bible and she said, oh, I read self-help books too. <laughs> and I said, I can see why you think the Bible is a self-help book, but it's really about God doing everything we need for him to do to save us. Now, she was still drunk, so that didn't go too far. But as she sobered up on the flight, she was really mad because she accidentally packed her wallet and wasn't able to buy any more alcohol on the flight. I think God arranged that so we could have a conversation. Well, as, as she really started to, to relax a little bit, I, I said, can I, can I just tell you about Jesus? And she said, sure. So I pulled out a two ways to live gospel track, and I went cover to cover through it, and she couldn't have been more locked in than she was. I explained the gospel to her, to her through, straight through. And and when I got through, I looked at her and I said, so what do you think? And she said, would you go through that one more time? So I went through it one more time with her. And she said, do you have an extra one of those I could give them to my daughter? I said, I do. So why do you want to give it to your daughter? And she said, oh, we're actually not going to party when I go down there. She's actually in jail. She got arrested for selling drugs, and I'm going to bail her out and bring her home. And I have no idea what to tell her until you just told me. 
and we, we had this incredible opportunity. If you had asked me who the last person on that plane who would have been willing, ready, and able to hear the gospel, it would have been her. And she was the one God had more than anybody else in that plane. It is so easy for us to just say, off the table, this person's more likely, right? When I look at this person's track record, resume, background, appearance, yeah, this person's more likely. That's not how God works. He takes the foolish things of the world that confound the wise. God reaches people that we think are well beyond his ability to reach. And that's never the case. And so Jonah thought the Ninevites were off the table. They're not. No one is. God has the power. God has the loving mercy and grace to reach anyone. And very often, the least likely one is the one he has for us to reach the most because that becomes a trophy of his mercy in awesome ways. I could tell you hundreds of stories. I'll just leave it with that one. Two, salvation comes from the Lord. See, that's why no one's beyond God's reach. He's not waiting for people to perform in a certain way to make themselves worthy of grace, which should make you laugh uproariously. Make yourself worthy of grace makes absolutely no sense, but that's how we think. That's baked into our independent, sinful hearts that we need to somehow earn it, prove it, demonstrate it, and then God comes along and he says, it's by grace through faith, not of, your, not of yourselves, so no one can boast it's a gift of God it's a gift it's from the Lord and it's through his sovereign grace and every sermon we've preached in this series emphasizes the sovereignty of God in the bestowal of his grace the captain was under God's sovereignty the sailors are under his sovereignty the king in Nineveh and his nobles are under the sovereignty of God Jonah's under the sovereignty of God the plant the worm, the scorching wind, it's all under the sovereignty of God. And so we rest in and submit to His sovereignty in all things. And God's sovereignty is not just restricted to acts of compassion, it includes judgment. Mercy is so often assumed, as I've said today, but godly people are often bewildered by God's mercy. We shouldn't be offended by his judgment. We should be astounded by his grace. And, and what's fascinating, it, it, verses 6 and 7 have identical beginnings. And they is introduce two opposite aspects of God's nature. The ability to deliver and the ability to destroy. Look at verse 6. So the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. So he delivers Jonah through the appointing of the plant. But verse 7, when the dawn came up, God appointed a worm. We have God saving here and God destroying here. And both of those are under God's sovereign prerogative. And so we're dependent on God's sovereign grace for saving, realizing that destroying is under his sovereignty as well. And so God highlights here the absurdity of Jonah's response. Jonah's filled with compassion regarding a mere plant. And he's hard-hearted toward Nineveh. 
He shows concern for one little item in God's creation, and he's willing to dismiss an entire city of 120,000 people who all bear the divine image of their creator. This horrible inconsistency, this disconnect, is something we need to realize is in each of our hearts as well. It's hard to get grace. I remember, I have a great neighbor who I actually, I just love him. He's an atheist. But we have great conversations. And, and he's just the best neighbor ever. He'll come over and he'll say, hey, he's a salesman. He'll say, hey, I got a great angle you could use with those kids at Biola. <laughs> to get him to buy in more to the whole thing you're preaching. Have you ever tried this? And he, he will. He'll strategize for me as a salesman to help me be more effective as a theology prof to get Biola students to buy in to the Christian view of things more. I just love him. And he loves Christians. He's like, he, he'll say things like, man, without you guys, this whole country would fall apart. You see, you're the fabric of this nation. Thanks for what you do. Keep up the good work, Eric. And then he just, <laughs> he leaves. He's fantastic. I love him. We were riding bikes one day, and I was trying to help him understand grace. Oh, by the way, he's also, he was an amazing athlete, track and field athlete, amazing athlete. His, his records still stand. He's older than I am, and his records still stand at his high school and college where he ran. Unbelievable. That's a long time to hold records. But we were riding our bikes, and it occurred to me, and I said, you know what? It's going to be really hard for you to get grace. And he said, why did he say that? And I said, well, think about it. One, you're a man. And men, I think more than women, don't like grace. We, we love to earn what we get. We, we love to deserve what we get. We love to get all kinds of identity from what we've earned because of how hard we've worked. We love showing that off. And so one, you're a man. Two, you're an American. Americans don't like handouts. Americans pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they do it. I, th I said, three, you're a salesman who works on commission. You think people like me, who's a professor at Biola, are, are horrible because we get tenure and can cruise for 30 years. You every day prove your worth at work. And I said, and, and four, you're an athlete. And what do athletes learn from the earliest days? You get what you work for. You get what you earn. What you put in is what you get out of it. I said, those four things are going to make it really hard for you to understand grace. He locks up his brakes. I thought a car was coming. He stopped. And he said, wait. And I had to turn around and go back. He said, say that again. That's amazing. It is amazing. But we need to realize that in our hearts, not just men who are salesmen and American and athletes, but humans have this resistance to grace. And if, you, if there's something in your heart that hates grace at some fundamental level because you want to earn it, prove it, deserve it, make yourself worthy of it, you can't get the gospel. You can't be a Christian. And so we need to ask God to help us really get grace, not just the words. We all can sing amazing grace, but how amazing do we really think it is? So no one's beyond God's reach, and God's grace is sovereign grace. He's sovereign over everything. Three, we're all accountable to God and responsible for our sin, but we need to have pity for people in a world that is so horribly 
confusing. Now, the truth isn't confusing, but we're confused. And just because we're confused doesn't mean the truth is confusing, but we're confused. <laughs> because we live in a world that confuses the truth, suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And so we need to have pity like God does for Nineveh. It, 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 you need to mine out God's rationale here at the end in verses 10 and 11. Why God feels such pity for them, even though they deserve judgment in such obvious ways. He says they're blind. He, says, he basically says they don't know what they're doing. They're groping around in the dark, so influenced and enculturated and indoctrinated by everything they've ever known that they're blind. They're blind. I listened to the Compelled podcast that Kenny turned me on to from Mindy, and it's fantastic. One of, one of the podcasts was about a guy who was a biker who came to Christ, and four months after he becomes a Christian, his pastor says, hey, you want to go pray for people down at the abortion clinic? He goes, no, I'm not going down there. He said, I'll buy a good cigar after, and we'll go have it after if you go with me. He said, all right, I'll go. So he went. He shows up, and there's this young, very young African-American woman going in, and he, he, these two have never talked to anybody like each other at this moment. But he goes over to her, and he says, hey, can I just talk to you for a few minutes before you go in there? And she says, Sure. They go over in a wall, and they start having a conversation. They realize they have way more in common than they realized. And he ends up leading her to saving faith in Jesus after a two-hour conversation. And she says, I'm not going in that clinic now. He saved her life. He ended up doing that as a ministry. He said, I think this is what God has for me. And he would go to three different clinics in the city where he was, and he would, he would just pray for people, and he got to know people, and he had conversations, and he said, everybody in that clinic knew how much I loved them. They all know how much I love them. And he tells a story about one, one clinic where, where they were having sort of this celebration, some sort of anniversary celebration luncheon, and they invited him in for the luncheon. He said, I'm not going in there. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. We're not having any abortions today. And he said, all right, I'll go in. So he went in for the luncheon, and the director of the clinic said, you got any words for us? Because he'd known them for years. And he, he said, those people know I love them because I know they're blind. And someday they're going to so regret what they've been doing. But they know I love them. So I said, how many words? And he just very compassionately but truthfully just said, uh, you know, I've been out here for years and you know how much I love you, but I just want you to know how God feels about what happens in here. The next time he came back the next week, the place had closed down, and he found out why. After his little speech, half the staff quit. And, and see, but the whole thing is they knew he loved them. He didn't just yell at them. He knew he had been forgiven much. And he knew they needed forgiveness. And he knew how blind he was before he could see by the sovereign grace of God. And so he, he loved them. Of course he did. He had a heart of forgiveness and compassion and mercy in the midst of truth. It's not compassion without truth or truth without compassion. And we realize that we're all accountable to God. They're blind. And God points out how he, he's labored over this city in a way that makes his creating the plant seem like nothing. 
His providential love, his sovereign love has always been at work providing rain and the just and the unjust alike, including the unjust in Nineveh. Providing heartbeats and breath, he's been caring for this people in providential love all along. And so he says, have pity on this city I've been caring for. And he talks about the, the, the brevity of the life of the plant that Jonah cares so much about. And he says, I've been caring for them a long time. I've loved these people a long time. He refers to its age. God has been involved in Nineveh a very long time. He talks about their weakness and their moral confusion. They don't know their right hand from their left. Sounds a lot like Jesus when he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yes, they're guilty. And ignorance doesn't make us innocent. But there's also a weakness component to our sinful condition we need to have pity for and compassion for and realize we all were that condition before God saved us. Of course people are morally adrift. Of course they are. Sin is alive and well and Satan prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he'll devour. And so we oppose sin, but with compassion for people. And this is something we've got to get so good at, people. Hating and opposing anything that's dishonoring to God and destructive to people, but with profound compassion and love and mercy for people caught up in the confusion. We even become opposers to the truth, like the Apostle Paul was. That's why he, he says, I'm the least of all the apostles. Untimely born, it just, it just doesn't make sense. But God has a different economy than we do. And I even love the last line, and also many cattle. I think he's just saying, even the cattle are my creation. You care about the plant, how about the cattle? You care so much about this little plant that was giving you a little shade. There are 120,000 people, a cattle too that I made. It's all mine. It, it all deserves your concern and your care. And then point four, God loves to forgive. We think God's stingy. He's not. He's gracious and merciful, patient and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's what Jonah quotes from Exodus 34 when God says that about himself to Moses. That's what he says. He, he repeats God's words about himself and he doesn't like it. What, what he needed to do, though, was back up to chapter 33 of Exodus and here when God says, I'll be merciful to whom I'll be merciful and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. God's sovereign in this. It's never Moses been about the people deserving my grace. That's absurd. Of course they don't. That's why it's called grace. That's why I love the name of our church. We didn't name our church. Dave Peters here. Love to know who, who chose the name Grace, but I love the name of our church because it's what we're about and, it, and it's what has been so evident through the years at Grace with people willing to forgive and be gracious because they've been forgiven much. And so we recognize that God loves to forgive. He's, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's not stingy in any way. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Not what's left over, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He loves to forgive. He doesn't forgive the way I so often forgive. And maybe you do too. All right. 
I'm stuck with this because I'm a Christian. No option. I, I, I'll forgive you, but I don't like you. I'm going to sit in that. I'm going to forgive you, but you don't deserve it. Yeah, that's why it's called forgiveness <laughs> and not a wage. <laughs> of course you don't deserve forgiveness. Defies the definition. You know, Isaiah 55 is amazing. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your ways. As high as the heavens are from the earth, so are my ways and thoughts higher than your ways. This astounding incomprehensibility of God. And everybody thinks, well, that's because God's ways are inscrutable. When we suffer, we don't know why evil's in the world. No, that is an affirmation of God's ways being so radically different than ours because what precedes it is, come all you who are hungry, all you who are thirsty, with no money, come buy and eat and I'll take care of you. Let the wicked forsake his way and come to me and I'll pardon him. And then God has to say, I know that's not how you roll, but that's how I roll. <laughs> and his ways are higher. His ways are different. But we as God's people are called to acquire his ways and start to live in a way that makes people scratch their heads and say, how in the world are you able to forgive like that? How in the world are you able to be that patient and that kind even toward people who hate you? How do you do that? And then we have a wide open door to say, because God forgave me when I hated him. And he's holy. And he still forgave me. There could be no better gospel entree to, than our unity and our extravagant forgiveness toward other people. The Bible says strong things about the kind of forgiveness we're called to as his people. Jonah's response is so contrary to Jesus, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Which is why Rob told us that Jesus is the real Jonah. He, he's the one who fixes the Jonah problem and, and it teaches us to love. He's the fulfillment of everything God's heart toward the Ninevites is showing us. Which is why the great commission to make disciples and the great commandment to love with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, especially our enemies, the Bible says, of course you're going to love people who love you. Pagans do that. No, but Christians love their enemies. We're the ones who love those who hate us. That's how we make disciples of all nations, by loving those who hate us and being one in spite of our differences. And so we have an awesome calling as the people of God to be the people of God. We can be known for a lot of things. I grieve over some of the things we're known for, sometimes in spite of the fact that we're not actually that. Like bigoted and mean and intolerant and competitive, bitter, ungrateful. But we need to be known for sensitive, discerning courage and love in Christ, for being loving, gracious people who move toward people assuming the best because God is at work and we can trust that He uses us as His primary instruments of His mercy. We, the people of God, people of grace, are the primary instruments of His mercy. Christians need to be people of grace who really love. One of my friends he says, man, I've noticed there seem to be two kinds of people in the world. Here I am, people, and there you are, people. 
You know, some people walk in a room and all they're concerned about is how they are coming across. Whether they're being appreciated, whether they're being valued, whether they're being loved well. And he said, it seems like other people, something happens in their hearts and they walk into rooms and they're just concerned about how other people are doing. And their overwhelming concern is that other people are loved and cared for and noticed. And Jerry said, I want to be a there you are person. But I realize so much in me is a here I am person. The people of God are called to be there you are people, even to those who hate us. Even to those who hate God. Because such were we. Heavenly Father, help us to be people who rest in the finished work of Christ and know how much we've been forgiven by You, a holy God, so that we are able to love and forgive in a way that begins to look like the kind of forgiveness You've shown us. Lord, help us to not be judgmental of the judgmental. Help us to not be graceless toward the graceless. Help us to be loving and merciful like our Savior who won our forgiveness on a cross and defeated all that would destroy us when He walked out of a grave 2,000 years ago. And so Lord, I pray that You would help us as God's people to live more and more unified and filled with grace and love toward others. That's grounded in truth and warns of the judgment to come but offers the free salvation and forgiveness available through Jesus. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know Christ, who hasn't found that freedom and forgiveness, I pray that they would be moved to come and pray with those of us up front or talk to someone before they leave. Lord, I pray that no one would leave here not knowing the, the freedom and joy and forgiveness and eternal life that awaits through repentance and faith in Jesus. Lord, help us to be a people who understand You and Your heart and begin to acquire more and more each day Your heart and Your perspective on people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.